I'm Dorianne Wheel. Welcome to Thrive with Dr. D. Welcome to Thrive with Dr. D. It's my very, very great pleasure to say hello to Justin Cohen. Justin Cohen is an international global speaker, one of the very best that we have in South Africa. He's spoken all over the world. Justin is about to launch a new television series. He's also just published a book which has been released with 21 guidelines about relationships. I know Justin is also involved in completion of his PhD, and we've shared many platforms before. So it's a great pleasure to welcome you to talk about something that I think is just exceptionally important now. You know, we know that the state of the world, there's a great deal of uncertainty, and that's precipitating a huge amount of stress and anxiety. And what we're wanting to talk to you about is just happiness and the possibility of accessing happiness. And I was particularly wanting to talk to you about it because your talk is the science of happiness. Dori, it's wonderful to be with you. We do this periodically and I'm, I'm really excited about this, particularly this particular topic, because what else is there, right? If you've got everything else, money, prestige, status, and you're not happy, is that really success, right? So, and ultimately we want all those things because we think they will make us happy. But in fact, what the research is demonstrating more and more is that actually it's happiness that leads to success more than success leading to happiness. Because you can have success and not get happy, but you are actually more likely to be successful when you're happy. In fact, we see Parnassus Workplace Fund only invests in happy companies, has a 7% higher return than average. Happy people tend to be more focused, they're 31% more productive. I mean, you just got to think, how well can you sell, serve, or lead when you're frustrated, anxious, depressed? How kind and compassionate are you, you know, to your kids, to your partner, when you're frustrated, angry? In fact, your happiness, focusing on happiness might seem indulgent, but in fact, your happiness shows innumerable benefits on the world. One of the, the most important things that you can do for the people that you love is be happy. So happiness is something that can develop. Sonia Labamirsky, a professor at California University, has found that about 50% of happiness is genetic. So if you're unhappy, you can blame your parents for half of it. And that leads another 50%. And most people think, well, that's all life circumstances. You know, are you, which country were you born in? Are you part of the lucky sperm club? But actually, that's only 10%. Only 10% of our happiness has to do with our external circumstances. 40% is what I call the golden 40 is our thoughts and our behavior. And that, of course, is well within our control. Gosh, it's really interesting to hear you say it is well within our control. And I think we're going to talk about how you can control it and how you can intervene in your life to get some control. Because, of course, we think that our thoughts which motivates our feelings and our actions are related to what we're going through. And I have to just say as a start, I remember many, many years ago, there was that little book, but it was a groundbreaking book by Ken Blanchard called The One Minute Manager. And one of the statements that he made in that book was so simple, but it relates to what you say, is he said that people who feel good about themselves produce good results. And people who produce good results feel good about themselves. And then we went on to talk about how we focus so much on the results. But if we should focus on feeling good about yourself, and what are the aspects of that then in what you're saying, at least 40%, which is very high, it's likely that some of the good results will follow. 
But, you know, the, the kind of question is, yeah, you know, you, you guys, motivational speakers and quote all of this, with what is going on in the world now, is it possible to kind of take that control and generate your own happiness? You're saying it is. And the big question is how? Well, yeah, let's let's also face reality here. I mean, this isn't the Pollyanna view of click your heels and, and slap a smile on your face and you can be happy. And the reality is in the age of corona, anxiety, emotional distress, severe enough to be considered a mental disorder has increased sevenfold, sevenfold. So we are seeing a... I'm hesitant to use the word tsunami of mental illness uh, because I don't want to be alarmist, but certainly if we look at the stats, they're not great. Now, what we may see as we come out of corona, already as we start coming out of lockdown, going back into business, I think we're going to see those uh, figures settling down. But Barry, the reality is even before corona, we see uh, just tremendous, tremendous rates of anxiety. 30% of people will have a diagnosable anxiety disorder at some point in their life. Uh, you're seeing increases, again, before corona anxiety, particularly amongst millennials. So the question is, well, you were getting at is what is the impact of external circumstances? You know, if, if we're talking about Lebomirsky's research that only 10% is external circumstances, we're like, well, people listening to this might be thinking, well, hold on, dude. I mean, I'm going, I'm, maybe I'm getting divorced. I'm, I'm going through a bankruptcy. That affects my emotional state. Absolutely, it does. But Dory, what we're talking here is about baseline levels of happiness. So I always like to say, I'll give you a way to boost your happiness more than winning the lottery. And I'm not being facetious about that. That is an absolute research fact. If you just won the lottery now, you would be ecstatic. I couldn't compete with that. But six months later, your emotional state goes back down to your baseline level. And that's because of something called habituation. You become desensitized to the new material things, even, even people, relationships. Initially, very exciting, but then we get desensitized. Now, that's bad news when it comes to positive events. It's good news, actually, with negative events. So even with a negative vote, amazingly, becoming paraplegic, people think, oh, you know, I would just be devastated for the rest of my life. Well, it actually doesn't work like that. You then actually rise back up to your baseline level. So the external circumstances will shift your baseline level up and down, but you will ultimately, if you don't do anything beyond changing your external circumstances, your baseline level is going to be pretty static throughout your life unless you start going into that 40%, which is your thoughts and your behavior. Can we talk about the 40%? Please, please, I'm waiting to hear. Sure. How do you influence it? Because, you know, as you say, we're just living in this time and they're predictable and unpredictable life. Absolutely. Events. You've mentioned things like bankruptcy, you've mentioned things like divorce. And I think that this idea of habituation, both from a positive and negative viewpoint, is good. And actually, it's really interesting now from a positive point of view. You know, if I say to people, what have you lost during this time and what have you gained? They've lost predictability, they've lost routine, some have lost money, some have lost jobs. Certainly, a lot of it is to do um, with certainty. And there are many things. But when you say, what have you gained? They talk about kind of coming out of the habituation with new realizations and gratitude for people who were there in their lives, maybe there. They say, this person was there all the time, but I never really recognized them. Or I lived in a particular way. And so they're stepping out of that flatness of the habituation 
and kind of recognizing things that might have been important to them all the time, but just kind of not got focused on before. So that is a positive thing. But let's talk about the 40%. I think that's what we, we really want to well, hear. I, I like to say that happiness is spelt with five Ps because I've got five keys that seem to me to be critical when it comes to our emotional well-being. And the first is physiology. You know, we think of emotion as the sort of ephemeral state. It's kind of there or it's not. As you said earlier, you know, we depend on the external world to make us feel good or bad. But emotion is rooted in the brain and the brain is rooted in the body. We are physical beings. I know we experience ourselves as psychological beings. And of course we are, but that psychology is rooted in physiology. And you only have to think about how you feel when you haven't had enough sleep, when you haven't eaten, you know, when you either had a sugar rush or a sugar depletion, we are affected by physicality. Listen, you only got to think about what happens when you have a drink, drink some coffee, drink some alcohol. I mean, we change our emotions with our physiology. Or you see a beautiful woman. Or you see a beautiful woman. I just, just saw one walk right past me right now. Uh, and, and, so, and so absolutely you know yeah that you know our sensory experience of course shifts our emotions as well but Dory, the one aspect which i want to because i want to give some practical tools to your listeners right now like what can you do right now with this so one of the most underrated aspects in our emotional well-being is movement is physicality so when we look at it, anxiety and worry and a lot of negative emotion it's driven by certain neurochemical adrenaline and cortisol. So adrenaline triggers the fight or flight response. For our caveman ancestors, this was really critical because they were an almost continual threat of being eaten by a hungry tiger or uncle. And the ones that survived long enough needed to fight or flight, right? Or in my ancestors' case, flight. Now, in today's world, we don't have those same external threats. In fact, the threats that we have are way less. You know, when I ask people, do you think the world's got better? They're like, no, absolutely not. Well, that is wrong. That is fundamentally untrue. The world has got better on every me measure. Increased longevity, reductions in childhood mortality, poverty, crime. People say, yes, South Africa, crime. I'm like, hold on. Our caveman ancestors had a one in four chance of being killed by a fellow human being. In South Africa, as high rates as this crime rate is, it's 0.003%. So don't tell me the world got better. We're going to talk about why we don't think it has. Because I ask my audience, they're always like, no, it's getting worse, worse, worse. It's partly got to do with Facebook and algorithms that preference negative news and positive news. But we're going to get to that in a moment. Let's just talk physiology. Is that a high adrenaline state is great if you're fighting lions. It's not if you have to do with what we, what we need to do, which is be cognitively focused. We need to be in our prefrontal neocortex, our higher brain, not our lower brain, which is where we have the amygdala and the adrenaline response. So people, when they're anxious and distressed, they're in a lower brain state ready to fight a lion when they should be in a higher brain state getting into problem solving and creativity. Now, how do we get into the higher brain state? What we need to do is reduce the adrenaline levels. How do you do that? Get physical, move your body, exercise, exercise. People think it's just to lose weight. It's just for their physical well-being. The research is very clear that depressed people who get into a regular exercise program get more benefits in the long term than depressive drugs. Look, I want to be very clear. Exercise is not a cure for anxiety, but it's like compare it to your dental health. Brushing your teeth is not going to cure a cavity. 
but it's going to help prevent a cavity and it's going to keep your teeth as healthy as possible, right? And that's similar with exercise. It's not like somebody could cure an anxiety disorder, but boy, it's going to help prevent one. And it's certainly going to condition you towards emotional well-being. So really get physical. This is essential for your mental health. So can I ask you something about this? Because towards the beginning of this pandemic, I was working to help prepare doctors for being on the front lines. And you can imagine a lot of that. There was, as I say, the huge amount of uncertainty, the anxiety, and the fact that in the moment they feel the anxiety, which is clearly coming from a reaction rather than a response, coming from the primitive brain. And they haven't got time to stop and exercise. They have to be able to do something quickly. We're talking about naming it then. If you name it, you might be able to tame it and move from that primitive brain into the more rational brain and get that kind of control because there are patients in front of you who you have to attend to. You can't really stop and take stock in a certain moment. You have to be able to shift out of that brain quite quickly into more of the thinking part, the, the neocortex, right? So how do you do that? when you just feel that your head is running away with you and you are saying, what if this, what if this, I don't know this, how do you, and you catastrophize. Yeah. Any tips for that? Great question. You can't get on the floor and start doing press-ups, right? When you feel yourself about to lose your temper, you feel yourself frazzled, brain fogged, anxious. So a regular exercise program will provide you a regular outlet for that adrenaline. So a really great conditioning process for the mind. Right. But to answer your question, what do you do in the moment? Breathe. And you're thinking, Justin, how did I live this long without you? But specifically, slow, deep, rhythmic belly breathing. So we have stress response breathing and relaxation response breathing. You'll notice that when you're anxious and stressed, you are doing shallow breathing in the chest, right? That's great when you're trying to run away from a lion. <laughs> short shot, shots of oxygen going into the lungs, but not great if you're trying to calm down and get into your prefrontal cortex. Then you want to get the air into the deepest part of your lungs. And the way to do this is when you breathe in, tummy actually goes out. And when you breathe out, tummy goes in. And the reason that happens, because as you breathe in, the lungs expand like a balloon, slightly compressing the internal organs. Now, if you can't quite get it now, when you, when you lay down to bed, you will feel it. This is how we sleep. You'll sleep. This is how, if you look at a baby, this is how babies tend to breathe. But most of the time, we're doing this very stress response, shallow breathing because we're in this anxiety state. So, if you want to quickly shift your heart rate, blood pressure, uh, you do it through the breath. Right. And that helps you get into the moment and calm yourself down quickly. Exactly. That brings us to the second P. The second P is presence. So the reason that we are anxious, look, Dory, you know, anxiety, depression, there's a complexity here. And I've explored this thoroughly. It's multifactorial. There's many, many factors at play. But if you're looking for a cause of anxiety, it is a particular kind of overthinking called worrying. If you're looking for a cause of depression, it's a particular kind of overthinking called rumination, which is when we go round and round in our heads about negative events in the past. Right. causes and consequences. I call this war, worrying, analysis, and rumination. Overthinking is like an adaptive immune, it's like inflammation. It's an adaptive immune response gone rogue. And so one of the ways to settle down the thinking is through being present, being in the moments, 
And this beautiful research comes from uh, Matt Killingsworth, Harvard University. There's a, a lovely app called Track Your Happiness. It goes up periodically th through the day. And then you've got to say what you're doing, what you're thinking, and how you're feeling. And that tells you then, oh, wow, gosh, whenever I'm with this person, I'm not feeling so great. Maybe I need to do something. Oh, my gosh, I'm married to them. <laughs> Maybe I really need to do something. <laughs> you what makes you happy and what doesn't. Oh, wow, whenever I'm in the garden, I'm really happy. I need to do more of that. But Dory, what was really interesting about the research, because they've aggregated data from all over, tens of thousands of people now, is that what they found is that people, over 50% of the time, no matter what people are doing, they're thinking about something else. And what they found is that when you're thinking about something else, you are less happy. When you are present, even washing the dishes, when people are washing the dishes and they just, in the moment, they're feeling that beautiful soapy water on their hands and they're just present with the sensations of, you know, the, the water and the, the warmth, they are significantly happier than when they are what they call mind wandering. And so our second key to happiness is presence, be in the moment. And you're quite right. You can be in the moment by focusing on the breath, just as the air goes in and out of your lungs. Yeah, just being aware of those beautiful sensations. Uh, you can do it just by, you know, right now, you and I in this conversation, we are present with each other, right? We're not checking our cell phone. You know, we're not looking, you know, over our I'm not talking over your shoulder. If I do, I do see a beautiful room there, but I'm focused with you, right? I mean, we're having a connection. And so often our minds are elsewhere. We want to be in the moment. As the great Ram does say, be here now. One just question very quickly about that. Why is it that when we're not in the moment, we are in the past kind of ruminating about that and maybe just increasing our levels of depression or in the future, which is the catastrophizing and worrying. What if this, what if that hasn't even happened yet? And we're not in the present. Why is it that those thoughts are usually negative? Can we not imagine all the wonderful things that are going to be happening to us, which might even be better than washing the dishes in the present <laughs> or certainly better than what we had in the future? Yeah. In the past. Yeah. So, so great, great question. And in fact, it brings us to our third P, which is positivity. So we know a lot of great research done by the positive psychology experts, Barbara Fredrickson. We can see very clear correlations between positivity and happiness and success. But your question, a really great question is, why do we seem to be more negative? Now, this is very important because I was teaching positivity for many, many years. And I started to feel like a hypocrite because I noticed that I still had a lot of negativity and I couldn't understand it. You know, and you start to then become negative about being negative, and I can't believe I'm so negative. And I'm, you know, and, you're like, and I'll tell you what helped me at least stop being so negative about being negative was that it turns out that we actually have a negativity bias. The great uh, Rick Hansen, a wonderful neuroscientist, says that the brain is Velcro for the negative and Teflon for the positive. Think about it. Something positive happens. Yeah, you're happy, you know, but very quickly you move on to the next thing that's wrong with your life. Yeah, something bad happens. You talk about it. You think about it. You make everybody else depressed about it. And there's very interesting neuroscience to back this up. So we can see in the brain a negative image, like say an injured person, activates way more of the brain than a positive image, like say a newborn baby. We have twice as many words to describe negative emotions as positive emotions. One step back in achieving your goal reduces your happiness twice as much as a step forward increases your happiness. Why is fake book causing so much trouble around the world? Because it has an algorithm that 
preferences the news that people are most likely to look at because that's how they sell advertising and it turns out that that news is negative people look at negative news way more than positive news you think the world's getting worse because media companies make money through your eyeballs and your eyeballs are more likely to stay on their media when it's negative and so that's why we are inundated with the negative and so this negativity bias is, is why do we have a negativity negativity bias Sorry, I draw a lot on, on evolutionary psychology because it's, it's really compelling. Like, the reason we are like we are is because this is how we've survived through the ages. Again, our caveman ancestors, they did not survive by singing It's a Beautiful World. Because they were in continual threat, they needed to be highly threat attentive. In fact, we are twice as likely to notice threats as rewards. We had to do two things. Number one, get lunch. Number two, avoid being lunch. You failed at number two, you'd never get to enjoy number one again, right? So we, that is why we see threats. Now, in today's world, we live in the most unprecedented comfort and safety in the history of humankind, even with corona, yes, even with corona. As I say to people, they say, oh, well, you know, this greatest global disaster since World War II. Yeah, it is. Boy, I'd rather be here than in World War II. Like, if this is our greatest global disaster, yeah? I'm not undermining that this is a challenge. Of course it is. But let's just put it into, as you, as you use that beautiful word, catastrophize. It's not catastrophize yeah. You know, um, so to your point. Just on that, before you go on, I think that is, is certainly the eat will be eaten biologically or evolutionarily pre-programmed for this. But what we also do is somehow, even when it, as you're saying, we perceive threat even when it isn't really Correct. a threat. So the stories that we tell ourselves, we have to be able to question those thoughts that you were talking about in the beginning, which affect our mood very much. And we're talking about the promotion of happiness. And so knowing that there's a tendency to see the negative in a way that probably many ways is an assumption not even real, based on past experiences or mood of the day or whatever it is. So surely that awareness needs to be, and that's your tracking app. What the tracking app is that it makes you aware, brings you right into the present of what you're feeling like in the moment. Mm. So no, what, I, what I'm saying is that awareness must be the first step to change. Yes, I think so. For me, it was important to become aware of my operating system. Yeah, we have an, an operating system here. And this operating system was built to deal with a very different environment. There's a few bugs in it, right? In the same way as we have an obesity problem because sugar and fat, which were once very scarce and necessary for survival, are now abundance, right? Well, in the same way, threats were once very abundant and are now scarce. But we still have an operating system that's looking for threat, threat, threat. What, 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 you're always going, what's wrong with my life? What, what is wrong? It could be the, the, the car, the standing on the curtain, the relation. It's always something. That's why you always say to people, what's wrong? You say, what's right? Yeah, we don't say, hello, what's, what's right? right? Hey, how are you? Hey, yeah. Hi, what's you right? Hey, that's, that's a nice thing to practice. Yeah. I like yeah. that. So this is positivity, right? So because of the negative. We have to actively cultivate positivity. Think of your, your mind as a garden. If you just leave it, the weeds are going to grow. They're going to take over. That's the natural. The natural, you know, a lot of the new age gurus will tell you, oh, no, you, you know, your, your intrinsic self is love and kindness and goodness. Well, it's not. Okay. It's not. 
So don't tell me that because actually you set me up for, for self-loathing because I think what's wrong with me because my natural state doesn't seem to be that, okay? You know, this idea also, trust your intuition. Your intuition's all right. Really? Really? Because half the time your intuition is telling you something terrible is about to happen. So I don't know about that, you know? So I, I want to say, let's be real, man. We've got an operating system. It was built to deal with a very different environment, and now we need to compensate. We need to do, you know, a little bit of a, a reprogramming here. And the way that we do this, story, because I want to give practical tools. What can we do with positivity? I said I'd give you a way to boost your happiness more than winning the lottery. Gratitude. Gratitude. Right. Every day, focus on five things that are right with your life. Five things, yeah. Five beautiful things that happen. It could be as simple as a meal that you had or looking up at the sky or playing with your cats or something that's good that has happened, yeah. Or even something that, that wasn't so good that happened, you know, well, well, hey, it probably could have been worse, you know. So, so what's good about even that, yeah. <laughs> so even the challenge. Yes, Corona, what's good? The question I always ask, you know, is, is what's good about it? What, what is good about the coronavirus? And, and Dory, you know, that question, I'm going to get a little controversial here, but you know, you may well know that, you know, that question, what is good about it, has been asked and answered about the Holocaust by Jews. Okay? Doesn't mean the Holocaust was a good thing. It's saying it's possible for something good to come out of anything. And if we just look at what's wrong, what's bad, we're going to be depressed and anxious and frustrated and angry. But if we say, hey, I know this is, this is tough. This was not great in many respects. But hey, what can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? How can this make me a better person? That's how we shift. Listen, I'm going to challenge you just a little bit on this. And I'm very comfortable with each other. Because what I find is if this is kind of handled not very well or with bad timing, you know, in the beginning of this pandemic, we were getting all of these at the end of every app, at the end WhatsApp, at the end of every email, stay positive, be positive, be positive. And the way that a lot of people were interpreting it is, as you say, there's something wrong with me because I don't feel positive. And what it meant to them is then, okay, I've got to show that I'm positive. I've got to show that I'm strong. I've got to show that this is, I understand this is just a stage that I'm going through. In other words, I am generating, or let's say from our point of view, people, including us, generate denial. No one ever turned around in the midst of it and said, thank you, Lord, for this amazing learning opportunity. The positivity and the lessons that come out of it somehow are reveal themselves. They reveal themselves through experience, through just understanding the gratitude that you're talking about through connection with other people. Mm or your circumstances, or all of the other things. But somehow to kind of make people say, no, I've just got to be positive, just keeps all that stuff unnamed. Yeah. And then the, the likelihood of it manifesting in ways that you don't want is greater. Now shout me down if I'm wrong. No, I'm, I'm very glad that you brought that up. You, you, you're spot on. And I... I never used to use the word positivity because it had been taken, you know, we, we, let's just talk about the excesses of positivity. Uh, firstly, we had the power of positive thinking. Uh, now, the power of positive thinking, Norman Vincent Peale, which then came out in The Secret a few years ago. Now, now this idea is this magical thinking that all I need to do is have a visualization, have an affirmation, and then I can cure myself of cancer and I can, you know, be rich. And by the way, Donald Trump, I recently found out his family was part of Norman Vincent Peale's church. Norman Vincent Peale 
said that Donald Trump was his best student. Donald Trump has on record said that this was probably the most influential person in his life. Now, if you look at Donald Trump's response to the coronavirus, what has he said? Firstly, he said, uh, it's just the sniffles. It'll go away. It's, it's not important. Don't worry about it. We're doing great. He was recently asked about his administration. He says we're doing 10 out of 10. So there you can see the effects of what I would call, I don't know if I want to call it naive positivity, uh, but just delusion, delusion. So we have to be very careful. In fact, Barbara Fredrickson, so I draw more from science than the, the self-help movement because unfortunately the self-help movement, and the truth is I am in the self-help movements, and, but unfortunately there's a lot of distortion of research. So positivity is very powerful in terms of what I call rational positivity. Uh, you need to, Barbara Fredrickson's found, if you don't have any negative thoughts, you are either in denial or you're dead or you're in, you know, you're in heaven, but that means that you're dead. So she's found those people who, who really don't have negativity are actually quite dysfunctional. They're actually not able to function because they can't see reality. So, but Dari, there's a difference between facing reality and looking for lessons and looking for opportunities in challenge then saying there is no challenge, there is no difficulty. So my brand of positive is very much confronting reality. Right. Confronting challenge. You know, I've got a program, a part of a program that I do, it's called the Breakthrough Masterclass, which is taking your challenge and it's confronting it head on. I literally worked with somebody last night. She was like, I'm terrified of death. That is it. I was like, great. We're not going to pretend, you know, I'm not going to tell you death's not going to happen. Yes, you're going to die. I literally, I said to her, and you might die tomorrow. You might die tomorrow. Okay. So that, that's the kind of brand of, you know, of, because that's a reality. I'm not going to dispute that with her because if I did, as you say, she'd just be suppressing. Now, Given the fact that you could die tomorrow, what's good about it? Well, by the end of this course, she was on, because we do an emotional rating, but she was on like, I'm terrified of this. It's like, I'm a minus nine. She's just absolutely terrified. Very by the end of this, this call, it was a group call. She was, because we do, we always check our emotional rating. She was at a plus six. She was glowing. She was literally saying, I love death. She, that's where she got, how did she get there? We went through a process. Part of the process was an extensive process, but part of it was, what's good about death? And then she was like, wow, what's good about death is that you can't keep putting it off till tomorrow. You know, you've got to live the fullest today. You know, she was a believer. She was like, wow, you know, I know after death, I get reunited with God and I'm in heaven. Why? Wow, actually, no. Why am I scared? You know, she literally, so she was feeling real. Wouldn't it be, would, how much comes into it? Because I really want to hear about the other P's before that you can't leave us hanging without the other P's. Would it be not realistic if we go back to your second P and we talk about presence and where it's in the present, but we also talk about facts and stop the ruminating and the catastrophizing by being in the present. No one can say, look, you're not going to die tomorrow for sure. But can you say factually, you know, can we let her look at the real facts? You're not sick. You don't have the virus. You're not playing in the traffic. You know, you have been contaminated to an extent by the fear and the anxiety, which is contagious. It's as contagious as any virus. Now, let's kind of really unpack that and look at the facts. Yes, one day, but you are going to die. But statistically, and you're the one who loves research and science and so on, it's unlikely that it's going to be tomorrow. Uh, or, did, or do you let her step right into it? Yeah, I, 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 what I want to do is, again, I want to face reality. And 
her fear, something that she just her particular fear, she's been struggling for many years. Oh, I see. It's not a new thing as a result of this. It's not just Corona. Okay. It's not just Corona. I think it's exacerbated by Corona. But it's, it's firstly, we, we're all going to die eventually, right? We're all going to die eventually. We don't know exactly when. And, but what I want to do is, is we've got to make peace with that which we do not control. Are you helping her step into it? Exactly. And I, I do need to say this was a, I've got a five question process. That, that only one of the questions has to do with what I call reinterpretation. Right. And reinterpretation is what we're talking about now in terms of positivity, right? Thoughts are not reality. Thoughts are an interpretation of reality. And so we want, to, we want to come up with more resourceful interpretations. By the way, saying everything's okay, is not. what you can conceive and believe you can achieve in an instant, just through an affirmation, might be very positive, but actually is not very resourceful because it's BS. So, yeah, you know, you remind me of when Jordan Belford was here. It was just the time of the secret. And he wrote The Wolf of Wall Street. You remember that? Yeah. They made it into a movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. And he was slating the secret on the podium. I mean, he, and he said to me, do you mean to say that if I see weeds in my garden, all I've got to say is die effing weeds, die effing weeds, die effing weeds. You know, and he went on to say, you've got to, you've got to weed the garden. So that's what you're saying. What's the next P? All righty, next P, drum up please, purpose purpose so you know victor frankl used to the, the holocaust survivor used to quote frederick nietzsche said he has a why to live can be almost anyhow if you've got a reason for being you will deal with what you need to i don't know if you know the story i i didn't know it until pretty recently but victor frankl didn't need to go into the concentration camps he was already quite a significant figure a top psychiatrist and he could have been freed but many of his family were going in and he made the choice. He actually made the choice to go into the concentration camps. And uh, to me, it just it gave such weight to man's search to meaning, uh, his brilliant book, which we, we should all read, because he actually didn't, doesn't talk about that there. But, you know, this was an experience that he chose. And so, you know, when we talk about happiness, I think people often think about hedonism. And listen, I, I love hedonism. I love pleasure. Why not? You know, enjoy, have fun. But, but that's not the complete story of, of happiness. You know, Aristotle was the one to create the first distinction. He said, there's two kinds of happiness. There's hedonic happiness, which comes from the Greek meaning pleasure. And there's eudaimonic happiness. The eudaimonic happiness is meaning and purpose. And you only have to think, if you had a choice to go to your dying grandmother's bedside or go, you know, have some sex, drugs and rock and roll at a party, uh, you know, where are most people going to go? They're going to go to their dying grandmother's bedside and they're going to be happier for having done that, yeah. right? And so that's what shows us that happiness isn't just about pleasure and feeling good all the time. You know, happiness sometimes is actually, sometimes happiness comes from feeling uncomfortable, from tolerating distress, yeah? Because yes, it's distressing to go to your, your dying grandmother's bedside, but it's also really meaningful and, 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 it's, and it's a very powerful experience in terms of, your own purpose, right? To have had those, that experience with her. And so, so purpose is about contribution. It's about the difference that you make in the world. It's your why, it's your reason for being. And it turns out that that actually also has a physiological impact on the body. It's a chemical called oxytocin. When we are contributing and we're giving and we are making a difference, we actually get a feel good chemical 
chemical in the brain called oxytocin, which is actually emitted in mother's milk, creates that lovely warm bond between mother and child. Interestingly, Dory, it's also an, a natural anti-inflammatory, which protects the, the heart against stress-related damage. So first, the bad news, if you go bankrupt or get divorced, you've got a 30% increased chance of dying over the next year. That's because of the effects of the mind on the body and on our immune system. Here's the good news. If you're somebody who regularly helps others, your increased chances of dying are zero. Wow. And I just think that's because of oxytocin. That's amazing. You also can see that what it does for you in terms of the valuing of yourself, if you see the effect, you can make a contribution. You're not doing it necessarily for that reward or for the accolades, but the knowing that you're making a difference also says I'm worthwhile. Mm -hmm. I'm of that. Correct. And I can impact other people's lives as well. So that line becomes yeah. quite blurred between giving and receiving. It's wonderful. Absolutely. If you're feeling helpless, find somebody yeah. to help and you will not feel helpless anymore. Sure. Very yeah. good advice here. Um, I'm making lots of notes. <laughs> I'm going to listen to this over and over again. So our last piece. Thank you, Doctor. <laughs> okay. Our last piece. <laughs> So, all right. So the last P actually connects to the previous one because the last P is people and our relationships. This is partly why I wrote my book, Winning with Relationships, because the biggest external predictor of happiness is the strength of your relationships. This research comes out of Harvard. It's the longest longitudinal study of all time, started in the 1930s. It's the grand study of thriving. And they took some Harvard students and some kids from a blue collar families in Boston and tracked them for their entire lives, fully expecting that what would determine your success and happiness was your IQ and your certain personality characteristics and whether you went to Harvard or not. Turns out that people who had the strongest relationships earned on average $120,000 more than those of the weakest relationships. It was more important than technical skills. And they were happiest. In fact, Dory, how's this correlation? There was a 70% correlation between the strength of your relationships and your happiness. 70, now in, in, in psychology, that is off the charts. 30% is considered seriously significant. 70% is just unheard of. So we really, really need to nurture our relationships, we re particularly at times like these. Now, one of the, the biggest challenges with, with Corona, I mean, from a work perspective, interestingly, productivity has gone up for many people because they're not traveling, they're focused, but creative collaboration has gone down. Team connection has gone down. Rapport has gone down. And so what this means is that we really need to make time to connect with one another, not just on goals, not just on achieving objectives, but on creating rapport with one another and, and just taking time to figure out how are you, what's happening, getting to know one another, right? Because these Zoom meetings are phenomenal in terms of uh, efficiency, but what they do, what they, what they, what they don't always do is, is allow for the kind of natural connection that happens when you come in person. Because think about when you come into a meeting normally, you know, you come in, there's a few minutes, you're getting a cup of coffee, getting a cup of tea, you're shooting the breeze a little bit. The Zoom meeting starts, everybody gets on board and it's like, okay, let's get to work, right? There's, there, there isn't any of that. So we actually need to create more of that. So can I say, and I think that you'd find this good news, that absolutely in terms of those meetings, that's what's happening. But in terms of personal relationships, what's interesting 
is that the length, we're calling them COVID conversations. The length of those conversations are longer, much longer. They're also much more vulnerable and more self-disclosing. Because people aren't just phoning, you know, like easy, like you used to do if you saw someone yesterday and say, what happened this afternoon or how did that go? This usual Mm. first connecting question is, how are you doing? It's because everybody feels connected because, you know, we we may not all be in the same boat. Mm. We're not in the same boat, but we're in the same storm. You may be in different kind of boats. And so it's affecting all of us differently. So there's the connection of how you are. And then it seems sometimes you haven't spoken to the person only yesterday. It seems from a little bit of research that I've seen on someone who's doing that, is that in personal conversations, maybe not business ones that you're talking about, is that they tend to be more self-disclosing. And what also is interesting is that men who traditionally have a harder time with accessing and expressing feelings, especially of vulnerability, are also giving themselves more permission because sort of everyone Mm -hmm. does. And the stigma of having those kind of feelings, even the mental health stigma, seems to be Mm -hmm. a little bit. So the importance of empathy, connecting with people Mm -hmm. to understand, not just to respond, being highlighted as one of this is your person, your relationship thing, the empathic connection, which might not necessarily only be with a person, but you can't feel I'm not good enough, you know, that overlay of shame that you were talking about can't coexist with empathy. If you are being recognized empathically, it does a lot for it. So your point about people and connection, I think it's just even more significant now Mm. than ever. And people are recognizing it. I'm not sure how, you know, this whole kind of mix-up between work and home is so kind of amorphous. But the recognition of the importance of having relationships, I think, cannot be underestimated. In fact, we know there's a book called Love and Survival, the scientific basis for the healing power of intimacy. If you have love in your life, you get sick less often and you, you get better more quickly. Well, Dorian, have you seen the research that social isolation, loneliness, is a greater health risk than smoking 15 cigarettes a day? Your mortality sure. with regards to loneliness, I, I don't want to put the figure out. It is, it's a crazy number, like what loneliness does in terms of reducing your, your longevity. So, yes, it affects, it affects your whole body. And I, and I think that, and as you say, you make some beautiful points about where we are right now. And, and, and perhaps this is the positive, the what's good about it is perhaps people are being more vulnerable because they are struggling more. And so there's perhaps, um, you know, greater willingness to to open up when we see that everybody's struggling in some way. Maybe maybe we will we will be able to retain that. But but I think what's really important is that we take our relationships often for granted, and we take our social skills for granted. We go, well, this is the way it is. This is the way this relationship is. This is the way I am, and we don't realize how important our relationships are. And therefore, we don't do enough to improve our social skills and to strengthen the relationships. And so I, I think we need to be much more deliberate. Yeah. What can we do? And again, let's quick, quick, some quick tips, you know, appreciation. You know, remember, we, we habituate, right? So something new comes into your life, it's exciting for a while, then you forget about it. Well, a similar thing happens with a relationship. And so we, the biggest complaint that spouses have about one another is that, that they don't 
appreciate one another, right? They take one another for granted. So make a commitment. Don't assume you're going to do this naturally, right? You need to do it deliberately. People say, isn't that artificial? Well, guess what? The word artificial means to skillfully create. So you need to skillfully create a better relationship. And you do that by a little love note. All the things that you used to do when you were courting, you know, a little love note. Wow, I really appreciate what you did, or you mean so much to me, or something about the person. Just And it does three things. One, what gets appreciated gets repeated. Yeah? Cunning, huh? They want to do it again, right? Because, wow, you notice. Two, is that, remember, gratitude is the undisputed heavyweight champion of happiness. Well, when you say thank you to someone, it's gratitude. You feel good. Wow, I feel rich for having this person in my life, yeah? So you feel good about it. And three, because of the mirror neural network, we mirror the emotions of the people around us, right? Somebody smiles, you smile. When you express appreciation to somebody, they start smiling. Triggers your mirror neural network, so you start smiling. So it's like the most selfish thing that you can do is be more appreciative of the people around you. So Justin, let's practice it. I'm going to say thank you so, so much with great gratitude, abundant gratitude and sincerity. For the time that you've given us today, I know that you have a busy schedule over this. You've given us tips, lots of practical tips. I'm feeling good for thanking you. And what that means is that, you know, you're going to come back. Help people. What is, what is that saying? Help people reach their full potential, catch them yeah. doing something right. So I'm catching you and doing this right. And so today you'll come back here. It's been amazing because you, what I really enjoy so much, Justin, about talking to you is that you give us the science behind it. It isn't just superficial. You've done huge numbers and amount of work, lots of research, lots of years in backing up what you say scientifically. So that means that we can trust all of this and gives us the confidence to practice it and integrate it into our lives. And so... I think that, you know, it's certainly thank you for the difference you're making in so many lives. And we wish you all the best for the new show. When does it start? 3rd of September, 7 o'clock on Mnet, single lives. So that's, uh, yeah, pretty exciting. Uh, I'm the co-host and transformational coach. And Dory, let me thank you. I mean, we have been doing this. I think we, I first interviewed you on my TV show, SABC3. That must have been in 2001. That's nearly 20 years ago. And I, I fondly remember that interview. It was, it was really great. I was about 14. You were 14, I was 14 exactly. And, 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 I, and I was, and I was uh, 13 and a half. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, okay. and, and uh, yeah, I just, uh, I, I'm very grateful that 20 years later, you and I are still connected and are privileged to get to share this information with the world so thank you so much for this opportunity i'm very grateful and it means a lot to have you in my life thank you very much and me too and we will certainly continue doing it justin thank you very very much and also for your new program you know that program that deals with uh, the breakthrough i think you mm -hmm. spoke about it that certainly helps people in a very um i've seen some of the of the references of people who've been on it quite amazing. Some of it is against me. I think one said that they'd seen a psychologist for I don't know how many years and got more out of this program from you than they had. I mean, yeah, that's very <laughs> affirming, you know, but um, certainly means that you've really got practical tools. You onto something It's focused. If people want to sign up for mm -hmm. that program, how do they do that? 
Thanks, Tori. So I run regular breakthrough masterclasses, which are free. So 100% free. We ran one last night. And the whole idea is that you get your breakthrough. I will take you through the five master question coach. It's a process that I've developed. So it's, if they, they can sign up by going to www.transcender.life. So that's transcender, T-R-A-N-S-C-E-N-D-A dot life. And if they just put in their email address, then the, the next Breakthrough Masterclass that we have, they will be automatically notified. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dorian. I'm Dorian Wheel. Thanks for listening to Thrive with Dr. D, a jackpot podcast.